last year. She amazed her family. But now... Mom, my science project is due tomorrow. Jeremy hates me. When chaos strikes... Mom, I want to play Xbox. No, it's my toy. Her true powers will be revealed. Hey, honey, your mom said she's going to stop by later. Is that okay? Do you hear that? I don't hear anything. Exactly. I'm packing! Nelly, what did you do? How did she know? Gifted by God with the power to read minds. I don't have any homework. No. I mean, I did all my homework. No. Well, I did some of it. No. Fine, I haven't started yet. There's the truth. The wisdom to restore peace. He said, that's it. We're finished. So sick of this texting. What? Let me see that. Uh, wait. This says sick of this testing, not texting. Oh, right. He was taking the ACT. Thanks, Mom. The insight to see the future. I forgot to think of a science project. Yeah, I thought you might. Yes! With a verse of unlimited capacity. And her secret weapon, the look. These abilities combine to form the ultimate example of warmth, tenderness, and dignity. How many of you were like, that's my house right there? Yeah, yeah you're just like, oh, that was way too true. <laughs> Man, isn't that fantastic? Oh, my goodness. Moms, the, the things you do for us is just astounding. Thank you so much for all that you do for us. You know, it's amazing to think about. Yeah, can we thank moms? Let's celebrate them. Yeah, I love it. That's so good. So good. So grateful for all that you do for us. It's amazing to think about the impact that mothers and grandmothers have had throughout the ages. Well, as the Apostle Paul is in the home stretch of his life in ministry, he writes to his young protege, Timothy, and celebrates the faith that came through the matriarchs 
of his family. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you're a visitor this morning, thank you so much for coming to worship with us. My name is Kenneth Bruce, and I'm the senior pastor here at Westwood. And inside your worship guide is a Connect card. If you wouldn't mind just grabbing that and filling it out, uh, hold on to it. And at the close of the service, you can stop by the Information Center on your way out. Or we have a gift that we want to share with you just to say thank you so much for coming to worship with us. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family called Divine Design. We're looking at what marriage looks like in light of the gospel, how the gospel applies to marriage, and how we can live out the gospel in our marriage relationships. We saw a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter two how God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. Last week, we looked at Hosea chapter three, where God calls Hosea the prophet to marry a woman who will be unfaithful to him, Gomer. And it's in this relationship that God says, this is a picture of my relationship with my people. I am the faithful husband, even though my people are unfaithful to me. What we're gonna look at this morning is how to love well and lead well even when in your marriage it feels like it's a one-sided relationship. When one spouse does not love Jesus, when one spouse does not follow Jesus, the other can still impact future generations for Jesus. And as we look at 2 Timothy, Paul is writing from prison in Rome. Nero, who's the Caesar, is increasing the temperature of persecution against the church and he is seeking to wipe out all Christians across the land because these people of the way, these Christians keep claiming that there is a Lord that is greater than Caesar. And as Paul is in this prison, he is in chains. He is in a cold, dark, dank location. He's days possibly away from being beheaded. What's on his mind? Well, let me ask you, what's on your mind? If you were days away from being beheaded for your faith in Christ, what would you be thinking about? Christy and I, back in 2010, had the opportunity to go to Rome. We were on our way to Ethiopia to pick up our two boys, and we had a layover in Rome and had a chance to go to Mamertime Prison, the place where Paul was held and where he wrote 2 Timothy. And we had the opportunity there to open up the the, the scriptures, and we read Second Timothy there, and it was amazing to me at that moment to remember how faithful God is to preserve his word. Here we are, thousands of years later, still reading the letter that was penned in this exact spot 2,000 years earlier, and yet God is faithful to preserve his word so that we might have possession of it and to see how God takes this inspired word and he teaches us and transforms us through this word. And so there is Paul thinking, writing this letter, and his heart goes to Timothy, the young man whom he has invested his life into. And he recalls Timothy's authentic faith that began with his mother and grandmother. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did, when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice. And now 
I'm convinced is in you also. As he prepares to depart from this world and to go on to glory, Paul is recalling the faith of Timothy's mother and grandmother. Yet did you notice in verse five who is not mentioned? Timothy's father. As we're gonna see in Acts 16 in a few moments, Timothy's father was a Gentile. Timothy grew up in a home where his mom and his grandma were the spiritual leaders in his life. Maybe that's where you are today, whether it's because of a spouse's disbelief or death, desertion, divorce. Maybe your spouse is emotionally or spiritually or physically disengaged, or maybe just because of some dumb choices that they've made. Sometimes investing the gospel in our kids is one-sided. So what do parents and grandparents pass on to the next generation? Let me show you these two things that we pass on to the next generation. I want you to see first, we pass on an authentic faith. An authentic faith. Look in verse five. Paul says, I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm convinced is in you also. Paul is remembering his young son in the faith, Timothy, and his love for him. Paul is constantly praying for Timothy, verse three. He remembers weeping with Timothy, verse four, and he longs to see him. He also is recalling to his mind of Timothy's sincere, authentic faith. Well, how did Timothy receive this authentic faith? Well, Paul tells us he speaks of where it started with Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and mother, Eunice. These two women were the spiritual titans in Timothy's life. They had a vibrant faith in Jesus, and it led Timothy to follow, not in his father's footsteps, but in theirs. You can imagine the difficulty. It must have been for these two women to care for Timothy without the spiritual support of his father. Moms, can I say to you that though the work of raising kids can feel mundane and thankless, God sees your work as valuable and glorious. Our culture scoffs at motherhood. God sees it as invaluable. The work that you do matters because it's bigger than you because it's about the glory of God. Moms and grandmas can have big kingdom impacts. You, by God's grace, are impacting future generations with the gospel by passing on your authentic faith. I want you to see, secondly, that we pass on a love for the local church. Number two, a love for the local church. Keep your finger in 2 Timothy and turn with me to Acts 16. We'll be going back and forth from these two texts for the rest of the morning. In chapter 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He has come back through Lystra to check in on believers and to see how they're progressing in the faith. And when Paul gets to Lystra, he meets Timothy, who in Acts 16 verse 1 was the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. Timothy's mom was a believer, but his father was not spiritually investing in him. What I want you to notice, though, is the role of the local church in his life. Look at verse 2. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. 
Isn't that interesting? The church at Lystra and Iconium, they knew Timothy. They had seen his character. They watched his life. They spoke well of him because they knew him. Timothy was involved in his local church. This young man was modeling an authentic faith that he had received, he had seen in his mother and grandmother. And here we see the local church affirming him. Later on, God would call Timothy to become a pastor, and, and Paul would write him a letter called 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul lays out the qualifications for a pastor. And of all the qualifications that, that Paul gives for what it means to become a pastor, all of those characteristics, except for one, have to do with character. The one is about being able to teach but what's interesting is that Timothy's home church could look at Timothy's life and say, yeah, he fulfills 1 Timothy 3. Here's a man who's above reproach. He lives a godly life. This is a man who is modeling the gospel. They could look upon him and say, yeah, this is a guy who's qualified for ministry. Parents, this is what we pray for and this is what we labor for. We diligently pray and labor to instill within your child's heart a love for Jesus and the local church. So parents, this is our assignment. This is what God has called us to do. This is our task, to pass on to the next generation an authentic faith in Jesus and a love for the church of Jesus Christ. The question is how? Practically, how do you and I fulfill this task? Well, let me show you four ways from the text of how we can go about doing this. The first is this. Number one, model the gospel. Model the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Timothy had seen his mother and grandmother model the gospel before him. He had seen how Jesus had changed their lives. You see, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just an historical event that had nothing to do with them, but the gospel had changed everything about them. When Lois and Eunice heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, of how he gladly went to the cross and died in their place for their sin, it is there that his blood was shed so that they might be forgiven and redeemed, that he was buried in a tomb, but only for three days. For on the third day he rose again, giving eternal life to all who turn from their sin and trust in him. This gospel, when they had heard it and believed it, it changed their life. It compelled them to model the gospel, to allow Jesus to, have, to be Lord over every aspect of their life. He wasn't just this historical figure. He was their Lord and their Savior. He was their master and their friend, and he was the one that they lived for. Isn't it interesting? In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother and mother. You see, faith is seen. You can see the effects of someone's faith. Faith is not this introspective feeling. It's made visible with someone's life. Someone claims to know Jesus. You better believe you gotta be able to see it on the outside. If there's no evidence on the outside of someone's life that they look more and more like Jesus, then they don't know Jesus. That's a part of the point of the New Testament is that when you meet Christ, he changes you and you desire him and you wanna become more and more like him. 
And Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy 3.14, you know those who taught you. You know them. You've seen them. Parents, an apologetic for the legitimacy of the faith is your life. When your kids and grandkids look upon you and say, I know the gospel is true because I've seen how Jesus has changed her life. This is a way that you get to fight back against lostness in the hearts of your kids is they're gonna remember a mother and a grandmother who was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and sought to display his glory with their lives. Now, parents, hear me on this. You're not perfect. You're not gonna nail this perfectly. And that's good news because this is where Jesus gets the glory because he will give you the grace in the areas in which you fall short. You see, the grace of Jesus through the cross not only accomplished your salvation and sets you free from sin and death, but the grace of Jesus accomplished through the cross also empowers you to go and live a godly life. But you're gonna be imperfect. You're not gonna nail it every time. You are in desperate need of the same grace that your kids need. But... They're watching. Your children and grandchildren are watching to see, does her walk match her talk? And if there is any scent, if there is any whiff of hypocrisy, your children will sniff it out before anyone else. This is why with my older two sons, both of them are now 11 years old, I've told both of them, boys, you not only have the right but the responsibility of calling dad out when you see me not looking like Jesus. And what I've do is I've coached him up. I've said, guys, if you see me not talking like Jesus, if you see me not acting like Jesus, then I want you to pull me aside and I have two rules. You do it in private, you do it respectfully. We're gonna shut the door and you're gonna say, dad, that didn't really look like Jesus. And I said, boys, I need you to do that. Because I can look one way in front of a really big group, but you're the one who sees my life. And so you have the freedom to have access to speak into me when I don't look like Christ. Can I challenge you parents to open up your heart and life to your children and grandchildren like that? To say, you know what? There's areas in my life that I may not look like Jesus and I wanna give you freedom to speak into me. If you see ways in which that don't look like Christ, I want you to feel free to say something because I wanna show you that Jesus really has changed my life. And if there's areas in which I don't look like him, you have the freedom, you have the responsibility of stepping into that space and helping me get back on track on following Christ. You see, we're to show our kids that Jesus really has changed us. The words that we say, the attitudes of our heart, the actions we display, how we spend our money, how we drive. Okay, now you're just meddling. How we talk about people who have hurt us, how you talk about your boss, how you talk about their teachers, how you talk about their coach, how you act on the ball field, how you treat the server at the restaurant, how you treat their teachers, how you speak about their pastor, how you speak about government leaders. You are always modeling. And parents, can I say to you, you're always teaching. Always. With your life, with your words, your kids are watching, your kids are learning. You are teaching. I once met with a man who said, I'm not gonna 
teach my kids anything. I'm gonna let them make their own choices. I'm gonna get out of their way. And I said, you're teaching them something right there. See, the role of a parent is the role of a teacher. You can't ignore it. You can't get away from it. This is the task that God has called you to. And so now you and I, we leverage the influence that God has entrusted to us through our authority as parents, and we use it to impact our kids for Christ. We want to point them in the way that they should go, and that's following hard after Jesus. So we model the gospel in all of our lives. I want you to see second way to pass on the faith is to, number two, teach the Bible. Teach the Bible. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 14, Paul says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, verse 15, and you know that, watch this, from infancy, you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Question, who taught Timothy the sacred scriptures from infancy? It wasn't his dad. It wasn't Paul. Who was it? It was his grandmother. It was his mother. It was Lois. It was Eunice. They were teaching him the word of God. Now keep in mind they were teaching him the Old Testament because the New Testament had not been completely written and had not formed the canon of the Bible that you have in your lap right now. So what did they teach him? Genesis to Malachi. They taught him the words of Moses and the prophets. They were intentionally teaching him from infancy the holy scriptures that are able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. May I say to you, your marriage may be one-sided right now, but if you wanna pass on the faith to your children and grandchildren, you need to teach them the Bible. You've gotta bring this word to bear upon them. But you may be thinking, but I don't have a seminary degree. Neither did Lois. Neither did Eunice. In fact, the vast majority of believers throughout church history have not had formal theological training. You don't have to have seminary to be able to teach the Bible and to impact your world for Jesus. So the question is, how? How do I, how do, I do this? Okay, here's where, here's, where, here's where it takes place, okay? It's very, very simple. You ready? You open the Bible and you read it. It's where it begins, right there. Just read it. You don't have to have a master's degree, don't need a doctorate, just take the word of God. Because what happens is when you take the word of God, the spirit of God will point them to the son of God for the glory of God. God will take his word and bless it. He uses his word to transform hearts. We take the seeds of the word and we implant it into young hearts so that in the future it may bring forth much fruit. One of the reasons as your pastor, I'm continually rolling you around in the Bible is because I believe the spirit of God blesses the word of God. The power is not found in some humorous, winsome preacher. The power is found in the word of God. It's when God takes his word, he brings it to bear upon his people, he exalts Christ and uses his word for the good of his people. This is what God does. Jesus tells a parable about a farmer who goes out and casts seed into his field and then he sleeps. And while he sleeps, that is where the crop comes forth. How does it grow? The farmer does not know. The point is this, when you take the seed of the word of God and you cast it out and then you sleep. 
And even while you sleep, the word of God will bear fruit in the hearts of the hearers. God is always taking his word planted within us to bring forth fruit for those who eventually will trust in his son. This is what we do as pastors. This is what we do as parents. We shepherd our kids. We plant seeds so that fruit might come forth. Well, that's what we see God doing through Eunice and Lois. God is taking the word of God through these incredible women and they're planting seeds into their son's heart, her grandson's heart, so that it might bear fruit. So you take the word of God and you read it. But let me kind of show you something that I do in my preparations for Sunday mornings, in my personal quiet times. Um, You can see it up on the screen. When reading the Bible, ask questions of the text. It's called five W's and an H. You ask the five W questions and the H questions. You're asking questions like, who? Who's the author of this book? Who are the characters that are in this passage? You ask questions like what? Like what's going on? What's the context? What's going on before this? What's going on after this? What's happening here? And, And what does this mean for me and for how I can follow closer after Jesus? When? When did this take place? Not only in a historical moment in the history of time, but when did this happen in light of the grand narrative of Scripture? From Genesis to Revelation, from creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Where does this fit within the big story of God? Where? Where does it take place? Why? Why did God include this? Why did God want to bring this in his perfect and errant word where every jot and tittle, every letter and word is breathed out by God? Why did God put it here so that I might see Jesus better? Why does God have this here so that I might follow more closely after him? And the last one is how. How does all of this fit together? How does this point me to Christ? How does this help me become a more faithful follower of Jesus? You see, as parents, you teach your kids how to study the word by asking questions of the text. And they begin discovering for themselves what God has revealed in his word. Another great resource that we have for parents is connected to our app. Right now, what your child is learning in preschool and in children's ministry, you have the opportunity to receive all of the cliff notes on Sunday afternoons. You turn on the notifications on your Westwood app, and in the afternoon, every Sunday, you're going to receive information about what your child is learning right now. It can have questions. There we go. Easy killer. It can have questions um, that you can have at the dinner table to talk about the lesson, what you learn, scriptures you can read, questions you can ask to engage your child in discovering the scriptures. Parents, this is what we do. We teach the Bible. We want our kids, we want someone to prick them, they bleed Bible. We want them to treasure the word of God. If you want to raise a child who loves Jesus and loves the local church, you've got to be willing to take the word of God and you bring it to bear upon your kids. Never underestimate the power of the word of God. When men and women love the word of God, when we grow in grace and our knowledge of Jesus Christ, when we understand good doctrine and then teach it to the next generation, we are an awful weapon in the hand of God. Watch how the Lord will use your life as you seek to exalt Christ with your life by teaching the word. Thirdly, engage with Westwood. Engage with Westwood. 
Back in Acts 16, verse two, again, the brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Timothy was so committed to his local church that Luke tells us that his brothers and sisters spoke highly of him. Though he was not even a pastor, yet the local church could evaluate his life. They could watch his doctrine and his character. And because he engaged with the church, they knew him. Hear me. You need to engage with Westwood. If you're gathering for only an hour on Sunday morning, you're missing out the, the glory and the benefits of being a follower of Jesus in a faith family. Now make no mistake, gathering in here every week matters. You and I need to sing together. We need to pray together. We need to hear the word of God read over us and explained to us. Yes and amen. But if your connectivity with our faith family stops within this room, you're missing the engagement that God has for you. If you wanna take that next step in engaging with our faith family, I wanna encourage you to connect with a life group. That's your first step in which you can begin building meaningful relationships, connecting with people, finding people who will be at your deathbed, finding people who bring meals that when you get sick, finding people who help take care of your kids, finding people who are gonna speak words of life and encouragement and challenge into you and into your kids, having people who are gonna pray for you, having people that you'll go out into the community and do mission and make much of Christ together. That's where you start right there. Finding that life group. In fact, in just a moment, we're dismissed. Stop by the information center and say, I'd like more information about a life group because there are people who need to be blessed through you. You have a word to speak into people's lives. And the best way to do that is in these small group gatherings where you can bring the word to one another. But it's not just that, not just bringing the word, but it's also serving in ministry. In fact, on your Westwood app, you can right now sign up for a ministry in our local church. And you can say, yes, I'm in. I can serve in this area. That's where you're gonna build relationships, get to know people, find the rhythm and culture of who we are as a church. It's there that you'll act 16 too. People will get to know you, be able to speak highly of you because they see your life. They see your doctrine. They know who you are. This is what we do together as a faith family. For Christy and I, our closest blood relatives are six hours away. You're our family. You're the people whom we love. You're the people we want to invest in, and we want you to invest in us. And this is what we do together as a family. But can I say to you, there is no perfect church, but we're close. I'm a little biased, but we're close. We will be perfect at the resurrection. But until that day, y'all, Let's love one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's pray with one another. Let's outdo one another in showing honor. Let's rebuke one another. Let's challenge one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's weep with one another. Let's laugh with one another. We are together for the gospel. And there's nothing more beautiful than the ingathering of the most diverse people on the planet who are together for a mission that is bigger than themselves. As you and I live in a culture that is dividing like the Grand Canyon, we are united together around something that is bigger than us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that will be proclaimed in the four corners of the earth. You and I are a part of a mission that cannot and will not be stopped. Though the greatest of emperors and the strongest of kingdoms have tried to stop the church, the church marches forward.
So lock arms. Gather with the local church and be known. Engage with people. This is what we do together as a faith family. Parents, get your kids, get your teenagers connected and involved. Invite friends, family, neighbors, coworkers. Get in here. Be a part of this. Everybody can be included on this great gospel. You see, God designed the local church and the home to lock arms in the discipleship of children. And can I tell you one of the things I've learned from 13 years of being a student pastor? Now, this is not a guarantee. It's not. I wish it was, but it's not. But most of the time, this is true. When parents love the church, their kids will love the church. When you speak well of pastors and leaders, when you joyfully uh, serve and participate in worship, when you are generous in your giving, you make church a priority. These things matter. You're teaching your children. They're watching. You're saying, hey, we're gonna go gather with God's people, not just when the weather is nice. We're gonna make gathering with God's people a priority, not just if everybody wakes up on time. Not just in case we don't have anything late on Saturday night or a ball game on Sunday morning. No, it's a priority. We're gonna gather with God's people. It's a command in scripture, Hebrews 10, 25. But hear me, it's not a have to. It's a get to. Periodically, one of my kids will say, Dad, do I have to go to church? And I'll say, nah, you don't have to. You get to. It's an honor. It's a joy. It's something that you get to be a part of. Jesus died so that you could gather with God's people. This matters that you're in here. Hear me, people. Kids' emotions don't dictate family convictions. Do not let your kids dictate your calendar. You're the shepherd. You're the leader. You set the vision for your family. You say, this is where we're going to go. This is what we're going to do. If my kids decided the future of my family, all we would eat is chicken nuggets and we'd live at Disney. (laughs) That's not healthy and it's not biblical. As fun as that would be. Okay? You're the parents, not them. Get up. Let's get moving. We get to go worship Jesus. We get to gather with God's people. We get, we are honored. We get to sit under the word. We get to go lock arms with other believers. Let's go, yes. You set the pace, parents. Your kids are watching. You model the gospel. You teach the Bible. You engage with Westwood. And fourth and finally, entrust them to Christ-like mentors. Entrust them to Christ-like mentors. In Acts 16, verse three, It says, Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. You know what I find interesting? When we get to Acts 16, Paul can point to the exact spot where he was stoned, where he was bloodied, where he was left for dead. Lois and Eunice were probably there when in Acts 14, Paul shows up, preaches the gospel, The crowd has a riot and they kill him, stone him. He's bloodied. He's left for dead outside the city walls. Lois and Eunice may have been there. They may have been part of the church that came and rallied around Paul and they prayed over him. And God heals him and he stands up and goes back into the city to preach the gospel again. 
And here's Paul wanting Timothy to go with him, to go on this trip. You see, Lois and Eunice, they knew the danger Timothy would be in. You go with Paul, you're going to get beat up. You go with Paul, you might die. But they entrusted their son, they entrusted their grandson to the Lord. Parents, do not let the fear of danger prevent you from sending your kids to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not allow fear of what could happen to your babies. Entrust them to the Lord. Parents, when the time comes for your child, for your grandchild to take a risk for Jesus, to go to the nations, to fulfill the Great Commission, do not hinder them. When parents try to stop their kids from fulfilling the Great Commission, they're being used by Satan to hinder the mission of disciple-making. And I'm not sure about you, but I don't want to stand in the way of what God is doing and wants to do through my kids. And it's going to take all of us as a faith family saying, yeah, we're, we're going to sin and we're going to go. Lois and Eunice, they saw the blood mark. They knew where Paul was suffered and potentially died and thought, our son and grandson, that could be his future. And yet the gospel is greater. The mission is more significant. We've got to get this gospel to those who have never heard. So Timothy, you go with Paul. What a challenge. Or these mother and grandmother say, go and take the nations and we're rooting for you. I can't think of as a parent something more terrifying and more, more joy-filled than that. Of weeping both sorrow and joy simultaneously. And what an opportunity for Timothy. He got a front row seat to see how to preach the gospel, how to make disciples, how to plant churches, how to perform miracles, how to pray for the harvest. Paul would model before Timothy what biblical manhood looks like. Now remember, Timothy didn't get this as a kid. Acts 16.1, his dad wasn't there. He didn't have that father in his life who would teach him the gospel and would model what biblical masculinity looks like. He didn't have that dad who would shepherd him and speak into his life. So what does God do? He brings in the apostle Paul. Paul becomes a father-like figure to Timothy. Oftentimes in his letters, he would write, my beloved son, Timothy. May I say to you in this room, we need more men who will rise up and be those mentors. Men who will challenge younger generations, speak into their lives, show what biblical masculinity and leadership looks like, what it means to serve your wife and be willing to lay down your life for your bride. This is what we're looking for as a faith family. More and more men who will mentor younger men, future Timothys, who will grow up and follow hard after the Lord Jesus Christ. And parents being willing to entrust your children to Christ-like men who will speak into them and Christ-like women who will speak into their hearts. I praise God for the men in this church who speak into my four sons. Your voice is an echo of truth into their hearts. For whatever reason, when I say it at home, it leads to an eye roll. When you see it, it's an epiphany. You just, you say it and all of a sudden it's like, did you know, did you hear what they said? And I'm like, I've been saying that for years. What is God doing? 
he's taking someone else's voice. He's bringing along a Paul who's going to come alongside Lois and Eunice and say, I'm going to show you what the gospel looks like. I praise God for the women in our church who are speaking the gospel into my daughter, who are teaching her songs about Christ and the truth. It's amazing how we do it together. But here's the thing. You can't impact people in a mentoring relationship if you don't know them. You gotta have the relationship. And so if you're finding yourself quickly getting to your car and heading on to the next thing to go about your week, you're missing out on something that's so vital for the health of our church, but for your good and growth in the gospel. Locking arms with other people who are gonna help you to follow hard after Jesus Christ. Maybe you're finding that your divine design, your marriage is not the way that you intended. Your discipleship is very one-sided. This morning, I wanna challenge you with the impact point, and it's this. Keep investing in the next generation who will impact their world for Jesus. Keep going. Keep modeling, keep teaching, keep engaging, keep entrusting we do this together, so let's keep going. Let's keep going hard after Christ together. Leverage what God has entrusted to you. Because little did Lois and Eunice know when they were teaching Timothy the scriptures from infancy that he would grow up and become a missionary. He would become a church planter. He'd become a disciple maker. He would suffer in prison and he would become the pastor of the church at Ephesus. They didn't know that. All they did was love him, teach him the scriptures, point him to Jesus, connect him with the local church, being faithful to the word, and that's what we do. God loves to use Lois's and Eunice's and people just like you. So for those whom God has entrusted to your care, keep loving, keep pointing to Jesus, Keep teaching them the Bible. Keep investing so that they might impact their world for the glory of King Jesus. Jesus.